Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. I am Dr. Brianne Shulman-Brown, and I am joined today by Mike Malloy, owner of M2 Performance Nutrition. We had a great discussion about gut health, how it relates to your overall health and performance, what we can do to improve our gut health, as well as what things are a detriment to our gut health. I think you'll find the information very, very valuable and helpful to your life. So let's tune in. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure having you on with me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's going to be fun. Awesome. So what we kind of wanted to talk about today and what we were just discussing a little bit off air is just the, the this whole concept and the research behind the gut and gut health and how everything we take into our bodies affects everything else. Right. that our body does. And so I first wanted just to get into, we hear this con or this idea that our gut is our second brain. Sure. Um, what does this mean exactly? <laughs> yeah. So I think people have gotten uh, this concept of gut as a second brain from the fact that there's something on the range of like a hundred million neurons that exist in our GI tract, um, which is roughly the size of like your cat's brain. So um, it's a pretty sizable number of neurons. Um, now these aren't doing sort of like cognitive thoughts, like so it's not helping you make decisions or anything along those lines, but there's direct uh, connections from your sort of what we call enteric nervous system into your central nervous system and they go run in both directions. So your thoughts are uh, potentially influencing your gut uh, and all that that entails and then vice versa with um, your gut potentially impacting things like mood uh, and a range of sort of nervous system disorders that we think about nowadays. So does this kind of play into why we hear, you know, a lot of people, whether it's like emotional eat or stress eat because those thoughts play into the gut or is that something, is that more just a psychological issue? Um, no. So that, I mean, there's a couple of different reasons that that might be happening. Um, so one could be direct connections between the, the brain and the gut for sure. But I think the reasons why people are more so stress eating has to do with uh, cortisol. So cortisol is a stress hormone, right? And so when you're stressed, um, whether that's a bear attack or worrying about school or bills or um, even training, um, things of that nature, like it's going to induce the same stress hormone cortisol. Um, and one of the things that your body doesn't want to do is have this chronic be, chronically be elevated. And a solution to that is to spike your blood sugar. Um, spiking your blood sugar will actually cause the cortisol response to dampen, to decrease. And so when you stress eat and specifically intake a significant amount of carbohydrates in that state, it's basically raising, raising the blood sugar, which allows you to drop that cortisol response. So potentially some effects, direct effects from the brain to the gut, but uh, also secondary, secondarily from hormonal responses as well. Okay. Yeah, it's actually kind of a liberating process once you explain it to somebody. A lot of times people, you know, just kind of view themselves as sort of being like weak minded and like unable to control sort of themselves. And the reality is that you're kind of fighting your own physiology. And so sometimes that can be kind of freeing to somebody to say, hey, this is why you're actually doing it sort of built into your DNA. So it's, it's cool to explain that to people. Yeah, definitely. Because it can be so frustrating for people who can't get, yeah. you know, can't get past that or trying to find tricks to get past that. Yeah, a lot of blame goes along for sure. Yeah. So you talk about the gut affecting mood and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, are yeah, there certain sure. chemicals or certain foods we intake that, you know, adjust that mood differently? 
Yeah, so it's all probably connected back and forth. Um, it's sort of it's sort of like a, a feedback loop in every every direction, right? Um, the types of food that we take in are going to impact our microbiome. You know, the hundred trillion bacteria that live somewhere between your stomach and your <laughs> exit, and you know, those microbiome going to affect the different types of metabolites that are produced. Things like you know, short chain fatty acids like butyrate and things like that, um, which contribute to the synthesis of something like serotonin. So, you know, fun fact, 95% of the serotonin in your body is found and produced in your GI tract um, and then circulates to the rest of the body to control a whole litany of processes, right? Um, bone formation, platelet functionality, immune system responses, of course, neurological processes. So um, what it all could potentially look like, but it's so complicated. I think it's going to be years before we really truly understand how, how deep this can go. But, you know, I would say the major players here are going to be things like the, the composition of your microbiome and how it affects sort of like inflammatory status. Um, this inflammation is going to impact basically everything, you know, um, your overall mood, um, your ability to deal with stress, ability to, you know, have the correct hormonal response. All of these things are going to be connected back to that, that gut status and the microbiome that lives in it for sure. So when we're talking about inflammation, yeah. What sort of, um, first of all, what causes inflammation in the gut? Yeah. Good question. So, um, again, so there's a, there's a hundred trillion bacteria or something like that, that live within your GI tract. Not all of them are pro-inflammatory, but a significant number of them are. Um, and your body has sort of built an elaborate barrier system to try to separate essentially you from your poop. Um, so, you know, you've got a physical barrier with the epithelial cells, you've got a huge mucus layer produced outside of that, and then you've got basically something on the order of 70 to 80% of your immune system that's sitting there as well. And in good times, this barrier is well-preserved, your food is all broken down, digested into sort of very basic components, so protein is broken down into basic amino acids, which are then transported across into your body. And your, your immune system can't recognize single amino acids. There needs to be chains of protein. Um, however, when we have some sort of, um, what's the word for it? Almost like a, an insult, right? So whether that's you know, an infection, so say you're exposed to some sort of you know, virus or bacteria that you're not normally you know, residing in your gut and that starts to expand, or perhaps you start to eat some food that has a pro-inflammatory nature to it. So everyone's everyone's responses and everyone's food specificities are going to be different. So I would love to say, hey, uh, you know, everyone avoid gluten, but unfortunately, we really can't say that. Um, but let's just use that as an example. So you're a celiac patient, um, person with celiac disease, so sensitive to gluten, and you take in bread. You know, your your immune system has been primed against it. Um, it's going to start to generate activity. Um, this does a couple of things. One, it's going to break down that physical barrier uh, between you and the microbiome that lives within you. So now you're going to get this, this process called microbial translocation. So things that are not supposed to be making it into your body are now passing into your body. Your bloodstream is intimately connected with your GI tract. Um, and then secondary to that is that you're going to have the, um, the cells that are, that are normally just responding to your gut. They're going to start to produce pro-inflammatory cells, like, you know, chemokines and cytokines that uh, are not as localized as you might hope. And it's going to impact the rest of your body for sure. Yeah. So how does it affect the rest of our body? Yeah. Um, I mean, so there's a couple of different ways. So, the big term that people like to throw around is systemic inflammation. So what this kind of refers to is sort of the, the level of 
um, inflammation that you have throughout the rest of your body. And it's sort of the easiest way to measure that people will do that you can get done with your doctor is something called C-reactive protein, um, which is sort of a molecule that's involved sort of with this thing called the complement pathway. And so basically these, these products that are supposed to be contained within your GI tract and not making it into your bloodstream and circulating around your body are, are able to activate the immune system to a higher level. So you, you know, you think about it on a scale of one to 10, your, your basal immune system wants to sit somewhere around like a two to a three, right? So you don't want it too, too low because then it may not develop appropriately. Like it doesn't say like a germ-free mouse where there are no bacteria at all. And you don't want it too, too high because then your immune system is sort of um, on sort of higher alert than it should be. And now you potentially could be responding to things that you don't necessarily want to respond to. Um, the immune system sort of works like an alarm system. You know, its whole job is to determine whether or not um, everything that it sees is either you or not you. And if it's you, its job is to basically turn itself off and not attack your own host sort of tissue. And if it's not you, its job is to recognize that, turn itself on, and eliminate that. The problem is that with higher levels of inflammation, systemic inflammation, sometimes that process gets screwed up. And so now you start to see your, your immune system just can get confused and it starts to see things that are your tissue, yourself, as foreign and it generates an immune response against them. And that's when you see things like autoimmune disease happening. Now, it's a lot more complicated than that. There's genetic predispositions. Um, typically, there has to be some sort of like um, larger inflammatory event, like an infection as well. But it clearly is happening at a higher and higher rate nowadays. And the thought process from some, some people in the community is our diet has a large part to play with that. I think people get a little, like, they think, you know, the stomach and our intestines are this encapsulated system and nothing can escape yeah. out of it. So right. how does the things we intake and the microbiome in our gut affect or cause the systemic inflammation? Yeah, so it really comes down to the products. So, um, you know, there's a lot of healthy bacteria that live within our gut, things that we kind of associate almost as like probiotics, right? So when you take in um, from the earliest days in your life, so when a baby is exposed to breast milk, it's actually got a bunch of bacteria in, them, in it, specifically uh, one of note called bifidobacteria. And this bacteria is completely like harmless in a sense. And its job is really to kind of coat the, the GI tract and it actually prevents infections from other, like other bugs, um, other viruses, other bacteria. But over time, we were exposed to more and more and eventually we developed what are, it's called our adult microbiome, which is pretty diverse. And in there are some things that are a little bit nasty. Um, you know, E. coli and other species that are like that. And normally under most situations, they're found at relatively low situation, like low levels. But, you know, um, Inflammation can cause them to outgrow. So your, your own inflammation can cause outgrowth of pro-inflammatory bacteria, which then promotes more inflammation, and you gotta get this vicious feedback loop going. Um, and some of, these, some of the, these little, very, very small products that these bacteria make, uh, a good example being something like called LPS, or lipopolysaccharide, can get into the body, and then they're, they're able to go basically everywhere. Um, a really good example of this is actually with, with HIV patients. So even, even under really well-controlled situations with like nowadays where most patients are on antiretroviral therapies, there's still a huge loss um, in the gut-specific immune system. And what we're seeing is that these patients have increased levels of microbial translocation. And so 
their the baseline of their immune system is set at a higher level. They're sort of they have more elevated sort of inflammation, um, and it's thought that this is due to translocation of bacteria or bacterial-like products across the, that barrier. So, um, very complicated topic, but the idea is that the things that should be contained in your gut are not they're not being contained due to some reason, either you know uh, an infection or something else in your diet or stress or things like that that could potentially be causing a breakdown in that sort of protection system. Okay. Is yeah. this what we hear the term leaky gut quite a bit? Is this kind yeah. of what? That's exactly what it is. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So leaky gut is, is basically that term for microbial translocation. It's exactly the same thing. Okay. Yeah. So when we get this inflammation in our system, can this also lead to increased risk of injury just because that inflammation in different areas? Yeah, so um, it, injury can definitely be sort of like a secondary effect, right? It's not going to be a primary cause of inflammation. So your immune system isn't necessarily in this activated state. It's not necessarily sitting there looking for reasons to break down other, other things like your tendons or, you know, um, things of that nature. But, again, think of this all as sort of like a, a balance game. We're trying to minimize the amount of stress that our body's exposed to. And so if you're living in sort of a, a heightened leaky gut type scenario, your stress level is kind of elevated. And so if you compound that with poor sleep habits or a significant amount of exercise um, where you're pushing, you're pushing the limits on your body, you're, you're constantly driving more and more of a stress response. Um, cortisol does a number of different things. And, and oftentimes what's confusing is that what it does in an acute setting, sort of like the, the short spikes that we're supposed to have, you know, every morning and then it drops over every night. Um, it does almost the opposite things underneath the chronic setting where it's elevated for way too long or to higher levels than it should be. And so underneath elevated levels of cortisol, one of the things it does is it starts to break down muscle tissue, basically for the purposes of turning it into an energy fuel source. Uh, also makes you insulin resistant and things of that nature so that you start to store more energy as fat in case, you know, evolutionarily this was a really bad response, right? If you're stressed, who knows when we're going to eat again, let's store our energy. Um, so it takes the muscle, which is energetically very expensive, and breaks it down. You know, as a byproduct of this, if you're still exercising at a high level, you could potentially be more prone to injuries in that steering area. So it's all sort of secondary or tertiary effects of having too much stress in your life. And one of those stressors can be something like leaky gut for sure. Yeah. With the cortisol being impacted, uh, can this also affect sleep then as well? Yeah. Roles is to kind of like wake you up. So cortisol's basic sort of rhythm in a healthy individual would be to have elevated amounts in the morning, um, sort of as a result of fasting essentially for something in the range of eight to 12 hours. You know, you haven't eaten at least since you went to bed, hopefully. Um, so it's elevated in the morning. And then as your day goes on, it starts to decrease to lower and lower amounts. And then by the end of the day, it should be nice and low, allowing you to go to sleep, right? And so that's what sort of the circadian rhythm of cortisol is supposed to look like. Um, what often happens in, in an inflammatory state, if you have too much stress, is the cortisol profile can be flipped. We call this tired and wired. So people that have a hard time waking up in the morning, you know, hit the snooze button, need a couple of cups of coffee to get going. And then sometime around 10 o'clock or so in the evening, ping, they're like wide awake, right? And then they have a hard time falling asleep. So a lot of times what you see is that the cortisol profile slips. So it's low in the morning and elevated at night. And that can be hard to deal with um, without trying to make some serious lifestyle changes. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. 
So if we have, if someone thinks they have this inflammation in their body or they know they have this going on, what can we do about it to try to decrease it on our own? Yeah. So if you've got something, if you're suspecting that you have something like a leaky gut going on, which might manifest as like a extra leaky joints, uh, overall, you know, lethargic behavior, um, even things like sort of, you know, low level depression or things of that nature as well. Um, there's definitely some things that we can think about doing to try to, you know, get a handle on this from the gut point of view. Um, I kind of break it down into a couple of different steps. So one would be to try to identify and remove um, any food types that are sensitive to you. So food sensitivities are, are sort of different from food allergies. So an allergy would be like um, if somebody is allergic to peanuts, it's an immediate response. Like they're going to have an anaphylactic response, they're most likely going to need an EpiPen and a trip to the doctor. A food sensitivity is not the same thing. That's a different type of response still involves your immune system um, but it's not life-threatening in the same sense uh, you're just going to have um, more bloating uh, uncomfortable sort of response after eating it um, perhaps some sort of like skin manifestations like red blotchiness on your skin and things of that nature um, so eliminating those types of things from your diet would be a good idea um, oftentimes people think about things like you know grains uh, dairy and things of that nature and that is a good place to start um, but it's not necessarily you're going to work for everybody. So, you know, I've worked with a number of different clients over the years. And a lot of times we start taking out things like gluten. People naturally move to gluten-free sources, um, like other things like sorghum. And next thing you know, they're just like lit up. And so, you know, that person may not actually be sensitive to gluten. They might be sensitive to sorghum or tapioca or something along those lines. So everyone's responses are going to be a little bit different. Um, so that's sort of step one. So figure out what your body's sensitive to, take it out of your diet, for at least 30 days and if you want to reintroduce it feel free sort of sort of following a basic paleo type approach to like how they remove foods and put them back in and see if you have an issue with them um, the second thing would be to try to think about um, how to make changes to your microbiome so the microbiome controls more things than we really understand still and a big component of that, of that is going to play a role in leaky gut so uh, a good healthy probiotic is a really good idea um, generally you know, we recommend one that has been uh, clinically tested. So it's called VSL3. Um, you can be found on Amazon. It's something that you're only going to want to take for about a month, and then you can move to a more standard uh, probiotic, but it's very high dose. Um, and it's got sort of a, a, a clinically tested formula that's actually been able to sort of um, help redirect the, the microbiome, which is actually a relatively difficult thing to do. Um, a lot of probiotics, I'll be completely honest, are pretty useless. Um, the reason is, of course, that between your mouth and your small intestine, your large intestine sits this thing called your stomach, and it sits there producing you know, a relatively low pH environment, which is gonna kill a significant number of these bacteria. So not just the strains of bacteria, but also the delivery system is really, really important with all of these things. So um, that's why not all probiotics are a great idea. What's the difference between it, for, as far as what, how it works in the system, the probiotics versus prebiotics. So it's sort of thinking about like, um, like the seed that you use to put on your lawn versus the fertilizer, right? So um, probiotics are living bacteria um, that you're going to take into your body. So things like lactobacillus, bifidobacterium, and things of that nature. Um, prebiotics are sort of the food that those healthy bacteria use to grow off of. Um, although they can potentially be used by sort of unhealthy bacteria as well. 
So bring lawn fertilizer to your microbiome. Um, so you're going to want to make a change to get the good bacteria in there first and then give them the right things to grow on. So a good example of this would be like resistant starch. So resistant starch is something that's found in potatoes, it's found in cooked and then cooled rice, it's found in green bananas and things of that nature. Um, so resistant starch is something that you and I, our, our body can't break down, we don't have the enzymes for it. But there's a species called Clostridia, or a subspecies of it, that can break that down. Um, the bacteria grow and replicate off of that and they produce a molecule called butyrate, which is a short chain fatty acid. Uh, butyrate does two really cool things. One is it causes um, epithelial cells in your gut to proliferate. So if you think about like a leaky gut scenario where you have sort of a lot of um, pores in your in your barrier system, if you get better proliferation of those, it can kind of repair those pores and generate a tighter barrier between you and the microenvironment. The second thing that butyrate does, which is really cool, is it helps induce um, what we consider sort of an anti-inflammatory immune response. So it generates these things called regulatory T cells. Regulatory T cells help turn the immune system off. So uh, resistant starch can be just one example of sort of like a prebiotic-like substance that's going to cause an outgrowth of a specific bacteria type, which is going to have very beneficial effects for you overall. So just one example. Okay, cool. Yeah. How does pH play a role into inflammation? Um, it's a good question. So it kind of plays a role not necessarily like in your bloodstream in that sense. So I think a lot of people will worry about it, um, the, the pH of their blood and everything in that nature. It, that's a really, really tightly, tightly, tightly regulated system. Um, the, if it gets too out of whack, you're essentially going to die. <laughs> um, that said, the, the pH of sort of an immune response is a different thing entirely. So when the immune system gets activated, it essentially depends almost exclusively on glycolysis. And through this process, it's going to generate um, <laughs> a lot of uh, protons, essentially, which are sort of like things that are related to um, pH. So they're going to basically cause the pH to become lower over time. Um, the body has to deal with this. It pumps this out from within the immune cells into the peripheral environment. And so it does, it does play a role in sort of the changing of, of the tissue environment, sort of as a secondary effect to the immune system. Um, so... At the end of the day, it's not necessarily something that we want to stress too, too much upon. Um, but it is, I think, it is involved necessarily at certain sites within the body, including within the gut, right? Um, so all of it, again, is a secondary mechanism are, are going to be involved. Okay. Yeah. So do you suggest taking in things that can help improve the pH or does it not really um, for that much? For me, I don't, I don't stress about it too, too much. You know, um, there's, again, a huge sort of regulatory system that sits there. That's, it's really its job is to kind of take as much of that under control as possible. You know, if you think about the digestion process, you know, if you think about the digestion process, you know, food's going into your stomach with a very low pH environment. From there, it's sort of being emulsified into a single sort of um, mixture. When it's jumped into the duodenum, all of these enzymes are going to be released by the gallbladder, which I'll have their own pH and require specific pH to work for breakdown. Um, and most of these things are going to be relatively okay within the normal realms of a diet that most of us are following, right? So um, if you were to consistently consume only something like um, soda, right, which has got a very low pH, that might be a scenario where things could get hijacked over time. Um, but it's, I think, sort of like an extreme example. I think most of the people that I'm dealing with, you know, you're dealing with are going to be 
much more within the boundaries of what the body's able to control. So for me, you know, there's so many things that we could focus upon and it's just one of those things that's sort of, um, the 99.9 percent of, of paying attention to, you know, if you can deal with everything else, get your, you know, your diet in check, get your sleep in check, exercise appropriately, manage your stress. Um, then we can start to worry about some of the, most people are so from where, where that is just not a, a priority for me. Awesome. Yeah. So you talked about what, you know, as far as figuring out what your body's sensitive to and eliminating that, sure. what are some things we can add in to kind of counteract the effects a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Great question. Um, so thinking about sort of anti-inflammatory foods or just sort of things in general. So we've talked about probiotics, which is a good idea. Um, we've talked about the resistant starch, which is a good idea. Um, on top of that, I think we could just think about eating for the most part, a diet that's based mostly, I would say 80 to 85% around sort of all natural food based things that you're going to find in nature. Right. Um, that's not to say that all processed foods are terrible, right? Like coconut oil is a pretty uh, processed thing, but at the end of the day it has some good, good anti-inflammatory effects. Mm -hmm. So, um, don't get too caught up on sort of, you know, um, like a, a Neolithic versus a Paleolithic food. But at the end of the day, things that are going to be found in nature are going to be generally much more healthy for your body. Um, what you do with that food as well is going to be really, really important. So taking the time and actually sitting down and chewing your food appropriately, uh, mindfully eating with something that I talk about with a lot of my clients um, is going to be a, a super important thing that can make a huge benefit um, to help kind of just get everything headed in the right direction. You know, a, a, a big component isn't necessarily that all of our foods that we're eating are, um, going to be pro-inflammatory, but if we don't do a good job of digesting them and breaking them down, it allows for them to potentially be um, that inflammatory process, right? But if you do a good job of chewing, uh, if you keep sort of your body in check with the appropriate sort of stress and getting, you know, good time outside and sun exposure, you know, making vitamin D, it's a lot more resistant than um, to these insults. And I think people get it give it credit for, you know, the problem is that most of us don't do that, right? We live, we live very busy lives. We don't get outside as nearly enough. So we don't get nearly as much vitamin D, which is very, um, a very good thing for your immune system, right? Thinking of anti-inflammatory things right there. That's one that you could absolutely do. Get a good amount of exposure, have adequate amounts of vitamin D, um, will make a big difference. You know, as far as supplements go, we generally don't make too many, too many recommendations. Um, but one of the ones that we do often talk about is uh, fish oil, um, omega-3 supplementation. So the American diet, the Western diet really, is very loaded with omega-6s, which um, are by nature pro-inflammatory. Um, this is not necessarily something that we were evolved to deal with very well, but we can counteract this, one, by reducing the intake of those things, um, and two, by increasing the intake of omega-3s, which have the kind of the ability to balance this out. So um, somewhere in the order of one to three grams of fish oil uh, or omega-3 supplementation taken throughout the day can make a big difference on your sort of immune activation phenotype. So omega-6 is to avoid them. What sort of foods contain omega-6? Yeah, that's a great question. So some of them are, are odd that you would say, okay, that's, that's still found in nature, like walnuts. Um, and then some of them are going to be things like uh, the like a skin of like a chicken, right? So chicken skin is really, 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 really high in omega-6s. Um, in addition to that, the fat profile of grain-fed meat 
is going to be a higher uh, omega-6 containing than say a grass-fed sort of cousin. Um, the reason for this basically has to do with sort of the, the how the animal deals with um, the, the conversion of food to fat in an inflamed status, which generally promotes an omega-6 process versus a non-inflamed status. So this is sort of one of those things that we're, you know, um, with clients, if they don't have a high budget and can't go buy grass-fed meat or, you know, free-range uh, caught or, you know, wild-caught fish or free-range chickens and things like that, I say, okay, let's go with the lower fat um, versions. But if you can get sort of like the, the grass-fed beef, then it's okay to go with a higher fat version because it really, at the end of the day, is going to be um, – a much healthier fat profile, less omega sixes and things of that nature. So yeah, so I think honestly that's probably the highest level intake. Besides, you know, sort of within the general American population, things like vegetable oils, it's just huge doses of it, like huge, huge doses of it. And if you're using, um, you know, you're not you may not even be thinking about it um, when you're sort of taking food, but the second or first ingredient on there is vegetable oil or soybean oil or something like that. So these are sort of where they're hidden into our diet as well. Okay. Yeah. What's your view on soy as far as what yeah. it does with the body? Um, so in general, I just try to get most people to sort of stay away from soybean oil. Um, it's got a lot of sort of uh, effects that I'm necessarily trying to avoid for my clients. So if we're getting looking at weight loss and things like that, it has the ability to affect the estrogen pathway, um, which, you know, there's a lot of smart nutritionists out there talking about the wolves being very estrogen dominant nowadays, um, whether that's through diet or through, you know, exposure to parabens and plastics and things of that nature. So just trying to move away from that as much as we possibly can. Um, and honestly, most people aren't really thinking, oh, there's, there's soy in my diet. It's typically hidden in a lot of different ingredients. So, you know, a good example would be mayonnaise, right? So mayo is everything's like, oh, egg white. But the first ingredient on there is going to be, in fact, soybean oil. Um, you know, it's in things like mustard and all these other hidden places that you don't necessarily think about it. So just avoiding avoiding as many of those processed foods as you possibly can is going to eliminate a lot of that from your diet. And then you don't have to really worry about it too, too much. But, you know, if you come to me and you say, you know, I'm going to have some edamame or something like that or soy sauce, like that's, that's a minimal exposure. That's not necessarily what I'm worried about. It's more of the mass intake from sort of hidden ingredients and foods. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Totally. So just kind of close up. Um, sure. Just overall, if someone's starting to you know, just get some weird symptoms, think it's related to their digestion, what's kind of the first step you would suggest they, they do to, you know, figure out what it is or kind of clean up their system a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first thing would probably be to start paying attention to your diet and tracking it. Um, when I say tracking it, I'm necessarily mean like weighing and measuring like we do for people that are focused on body composition, but just paying attention to what's going into your diet. So, um, you know, breakfast would, would be chicken sausages, eggs, you know, spinach, uh, oatmeal, coffee, and almond milk. And then for lunch, you know, I had, um, you know, a salad with salmon and green beans and whatever. And then boom, two o'clock hits. Hey, I've got some weird digestion stuff going on here, right? Okay, well, I can go back to my food log now. And over time, if I start to do this long enough, I can say, okay, you know, at lunch, I had uh, the salad, which had lettuce, I had some salmon and some green beans in there. 
So now I can start to break that down and say, okay, we'll see if one of those things potentially is the, the cause of this. So maybe I just have the green beans first. And sure enough, like, ah, I, I take those two hours later or within two hours, I feel like I've got that bloating symptom coming up. It's probably a pretty good chance that that's it, you know? And um, don't necessarily think that some foods that are, quote, you know, all natural that you find in nature are still not a problem for you. Like we see this all the time with kiwis, bananas, um, things of that nature, um, beans and legumes and stuff like that. Um, you'd be surprised how many people actually have sensitivities to those. So step one would be to track your diet, just sort of start to correlate it with when you feel good and when you don't feel good. And you can start to backtrack and figure out what potentially could be the cause of it. Um, second to that would probably be to start to pay attention to your sleep habits. Um, see if you're more prone to symptoms after a bad night of sleep, you know, maybe like at six hours or less compared to night you were in bed for eight hours. You'll probably find that that's the case. Um, that would be step two. Um, and then step three would just start to be, you know, pay attention to the little small habits. So again, uh, take time to eat mindfully, chew your food um, and things like that. And a lot of those issues tend to resolve themselves as well. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. Oh, and that reminds me, I was going to ask you one other thing. Sure. Uh, with the chewing your food, I've heard in the past that, you know, if we do more of like a liquid type diet, uh, mm -hmm. like a lot of, protein shakes and a lot of that because we're on the go or we just don't want to eat. Does that affect how our digestive system works? So over time, if you were to do it for long enough, it's going to change sort of the enzymatic um, process. So think of it sort of as like your body is pretty designed to respond to what, what it's being stimulated with. So for example, if you were to eat a relatively high fat diet for a while, your body's going to, we'll say high fat, low carb, your body's going to naturally increase the production of lipases, which are designed to break down lipids. It's going to downregulate the production of amylases, which are designed to break down carbs. And so we see this a lot with the clientele that we work with. We put them on a higher carb diet to help them manage the uh, training, training stimulus that they're putting themselves in. You know, they're, they're working out two, three hours a day and not eating nearly enough carbs. And for the first week, they feel really bloated. You know, and the reality of the situation is that their body hasn't caught up. It hasn't started to produce enough of the amylase enzymes to help them break down all of that carb they're taking into their body. But sure enough, a week in, uh, it's caught up. It's producing all the enzymes it needs. They start to feel good. The digestion's great. The next week after that, they're hungry. So taking the example that you're using a lot of protein shakes and not necessarily eating a lot of protein from, you know, animal sources, over time, the body could potentially downregulate a lot of the enzymes that are involved with breaking down those types of foods. Um, you know, one of the things that's gaining a lot of popularity these days is this thing called the vertical diet, which is basically the idea of eating sort of the same things every single day and making them all very macronutrient and micronutrient dense. So your body doesn't have to spend a lot of time digesting to get a lot out of your diet. This is specifically designed for athletes. And the goal there is really to say like, okay, if I eat steak every day, you know, for lunch and dinner, I'm basically over time that optimizing my digestion. To, to break down of that product, you know, as opposed to changing your nutrition sources all the time. Um, I'm not saying that you should do this, but it's an approach to sort of gaining popularity. And, and that's sort of the hypothesis behind this sort of saying, like, I'm going to optimize my diet to break down the foods that I'm specifically eating over and over and over. So, yeah. Okay, cool. And then just finally, if someone has more questions for you, where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I own and run a company called M2 Performance Nutrition. And on there is the contact us button. Uh, that's probably the best place to find us. So m2performancenutrition.com, or you can find us through Instagram. 
or you can just, uh, my email is actually on the website. So you can track it down and shoot me a message through there. Happy to answer and respond to any and all questions that are, that are out there for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for joining me today. It's a pleasure to get all this information from you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me on. You're welcome. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. Show notes can be found at highlyfunctional.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate if you would go on to iTunes and give me a five-star rating and review, as well as share this on social media with all your friends and followers. Until next time, go out and be highly functional.